So I suppose, you know, we churches ought to say to ourselves, we better be preaching Christ because that is the answer. He is the answer. And the very thing that the world is is burning down their own towns trying to figure out, we have in Christ. Welcome to the Christian Music Archive podcast, conversations about Christ, community, and music. I'm your host, Dave Maurer. I'm really excited to share with you my conversation with Randy Thomas. Randy is currently the worship leader at a church in Fort Myers, Florida, but before his tenure as a pastor, he was a member of the Sweet Comfort Band for nearly a decade, before moving on to start the band The Allies. Oh yeah, and he also wrote a little song called Butterfly Kisses with his songwriting partner Bob Carlyle. Together they wrote songs for a number of country artists, including a number one hit for none other than Dolly Parton. I'm eager to let you hear Randy's heart for sharing Jesus with people. As Randy stated in the opening, Jesus is the answer that people are looking for, and we as Christians have the opportunity to share that answer. I love his passion about sharing Christ. But before we jump into our conversation with Randy, I'd like to mention that I would love your help with this podcast. You will notice that I don't have any advertisers, so all of the hosting fees and production costs to produce this podcast each week come out of my own pocket. If you appreciate these conversations with Christian artists, won't you consider helping? For about the same price as an iced mocha frappuccino, you can help cover the costs of producing these conversations each week. Head on over to patreon.com slash ccmexchange to learn more about how you can help. And again, that's patreon.com slash ccmexchange. Thanks for your interest and willingness to help. Well, welcome, Randy. I'm glad to uh, have the opportunity to chat with you. It's been fun for me as a uh, music fanboy to connect with some of the people that I've long admired and I've been a huge Sweet Comfort and Allies fan for years and years. Um, so it's good to be able to get to chat with you for a little bit. Well, I appreciate it so much. Some Somewhere there's somebody online that tried to pay me a, gl- a great compliment and called me a killer guitarist. So, so I want to go on record saying I have never actually killed anyone with a guitar. <laughs> Well, well, you are. I heard an interview with Brian Duncan a few days ago that he talked about as you as one of the most gifted guitarists he knows. So that's a good compliment, I think. That's kind of him. I uh, we recently had a conversation. I think Brian and I did some concerts together, 2012, and and at some other point, 2015. I get my years mixed up, but uh, but I remember conversations perfectly. But. <laughs> <laughs> But he turned to me and, and said, I never realized, you know, that how good you are because he had, he had been in a band with me and, and you, you yeah. just have your guitar player in your band. What's the big deal? Yeah. And, uh, and I think his wife turned to him and said, uh, said something about my playing and, and, uh, I had to admit the same thing to Brian. I said, you know, well, I thought you were a pretty good singer, but, and we got back together <laughs> and, and we did another record together and I realized. Hey, you know, he's really great. (laughs) 
hindsight's twenty twenty, right? <laughs> yeah. So I think uh, in in our in our sunset years, Brian and I are becoming fans of each other. <laughs> oh, that's fun. That's fun. Well, you have had. I mean, sweet comfort and allies are not all you've done. I mean, you you were in. Um, speaking of sunset, you were in sunrise, right? And Psalm one fifty. Oh yeah. Kind of okay. Early early Jesus stuff. Okay, to go into the the early history, yeah, I'm surprised you you were familiar with Sunrise. There was um, drummer of the band was Steve Latination, who played with Brian and a lot of people. Yeah, player was Matthew Chapman, uh, who played with Allies and a lot of people. The uh, guitarist Mike Hodge uh, is over at Lakeland Church in Houston. Uh, you may know him and. Uh, Sam Scott, uh, who was later in Allies, uh, all these people that uh, we had a, a band called Sunrise, which, you know, that was a very 70s uh, name for a Rialto dance band. <laughs> and as we sort of learned to play our instruments, uh, one by one, everyone in the band became Christians. And then we switched, uh, we, we used to have a a bass drum, uh, you, you know, where you put your name on the uh, right. drum set. Uh, and we just changed the U into an O and we became Sunrise. Ah. And uh, and then the Christian band Sunrise became communal. And we were sort of basing our lives and copying a band called Psalm 150, which was based oh, sure. in uh, San Bernardino, California. And Psalm 150 was later a band that uh, there was a, a mass exodus where a bunch of them left and they became Andre Crouch's band. Oh, I didn't realize that. Um, yeah, that's uh, that's an important part of musical history, I think. Yeah. Uh, so when when James Felix and uh, Glenn on sax and um, these uh, different musicians had left Psalm 150 to play with Andre, that's how uh, Sam and I then got in the band Psalm 150. And uh, we were sort of uh, a band that played, it was like Earth, Wind, and Fire. It was mm -hmm. a horn band. We went and played prisons and all of that. And during those days, we would run into Sweet Comfort. And okay. Sweet Comfort was a little bit odd because you had the, the blonde piano player who would sit <laughs> at the piano and a, and a bass player and drummer would would play along, and it just sounded like something was missing. Mm -hmm. And meanwhile, they were taking a lot of grief saying, you know, well, you guys are going to be good when you get a guitar player. Uh-oh. <laughs> and uh, uh, which I think Brian had some resentment for. And uh, and that led to uh, somehow, you know, we there, there's a poster somewhere. There was a concert with, Sunrise, Psalm 150, and Sweet Comfort Band. We all played together. Oh, no kidding. Pacific High School Auditorium somewhere in the mid-70s. And because they had seen me play and they were getting so much grief about getting a guitar player, that led to a... I actually had auditioned to, to play at Calvary Chapel Riverside and you had to audition through Kevin, the bass player with Sweet Comfort Band. Right. So Kevin had said, uh, well, 
I've seen you play guitar. Let's go over to my house and jam. And so just purely on a whim, you know, went over to Kevin's house. His brother comes over, starts playing drums. Brian comes over, starts playing piano. And uh, we laughed about it later where first they said, well, why don't you come play a gig with us at Knott's Berry Farm? And then there was something else that, you know, maybe it was uh, it was playing at a Calvary Chapel. And so one by one by one, I kept doing things with Sweet Comfort Band, and I was never officially asked to join. Oh, no kidding. <laughs> <laughs> I think Kevin and I later realized that, uh, you know, we I got in the band and uh, we never officially uh, signed me on. I just, you know, bit by bit started playing and then we we made a record and uh, it became a joke that, you know, I never really officially joined this band. (laughs) (laughs) You became one of the primary songwriters as well, right? You and Brian kind of penned everything. Well, the way I, if you, if you look at the first record, Brian wrote so much of the first record and I consider my contributions to be the beginnings of trying to learn how to write songs. So I um, co-wrote a song with Brian and Rick that was Childish Things. And I brought uh, a song, it's kind of embarrassing, His Name is Whispered, where um, that was one of the very first songs that that uh, I had written. Hmm. So the second record, uh, as is often the case, Brian had poured so much into the first record that he was a bit of a dry well on the second record. Ah. So I noticed that if I would sit down with Rick, um, the drummer, if Rick would say, uh, let's do a song like this. And I would co-write something with Rick, it would get on the record. Ah. So, um, I think Brian would agree with me that the second record, Rick and I presented so much material that we sort of became a threat to his dominance as a songwriter. And then you'll notice on subsequent records, you know, um, I think the healthy thing that developed in Sweet Comfort Band was uh, uh, Rick and I would write a song together. Well, then Brian would write a song together. Then Brian would need help with with a song, and I might write it with him. And we we had this interesting balance of competition and cooperation. And I think the band really benefited from... uh, I noticed that whenever I wrote a song that Brian really respected he would get depressed Uh-oh. <laughs> uh, and then he would respond with the best song he'd ever written. Ah, so the bruising of egos led to some very good things. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, so the Genesis of your writing then started with sweet comfort. Yes. Because if you, uh, thankfully there is no, there's, there's very little remaining recorded evidence of the songs that I wrote in the band Sunrise, (laughs) they were horrible. (laughs) I can say that with all confidence. I've got witnesses. I I was the primary writer, I suppose, but but, uh, when Sam was beginning to write songs and, and, uh, but all of us were so amateurish that the, the, the songs were just horrible. So there's, uh, you know, there's this wonderful thing that happens when you're 
sort of you're trying to get a song up to a level that other people will appreciate it. Yeah. And then it gets on a record and, and other people hear it. There's something about knowing that uh, that someone is going to witness what you're writing, you know, that causes you to to think, well, this better be good and you yeah. improve. Well, and that's like any other skill, right? The more you work and the more you practice it, the better you get, hopefully. Yes. And as simple as that sounds, uh, I, I find that, uh, yes, those that are, that become professional songwriters, probably nearly without exception, every, every great songwriter has learned how to do a lot of what I call rewriting. You know, you may have an idea and then you throw it out and then you, um, or you may have a piece of music. You may write multiple sets of lyrics to it. So I've I've had an interesting time living here in Fort Myers, Florida, where they have a gathering of songwriters here. Ah. And without getting myself in trouble, <laughs> I won't name any names, but the, you know, I had a, a presentation with these guys where I sat down and, and you know, kind of did a little one day seminar. Yeah. Saying, this is how you could be a better songwriter. And they started arguing with me. Uh-oh. <laughs> <laughs> and I realized that there are many amateur songwriters that actually, they just want to continue to write amateur, bad, horrible songs. Mm. And, uh, uh, and it's not a pretty sight and it's not fun to listen to. Uh, but I think, uh, there are those of us who started as horrible songwriters, um, you know, the, the way that you grow out of that may be in co-writing with someone and with competition right. like Brian and I did and uh, and just sort of rising to the occasion to know that okay if I'm going to get a song on a record it has to be better than some some other song that's submitted and mm. the competition is good so all that to say yes there's there's there is a process of of rewriting and throwing out uh you know, I think any songwriter would tell you that it's not as if all of us songwriters have these brilliant ideas and we sit down and we always write a brilliant song. Mm -hmm. uh, most of us will say we have goofy ideas and we have to sift through all the different ideas that we get. We find a little gem and mm -hmm. then even then we have to rewrite it and rewrite it and work on it in order for it to be good. So I think you will never... There's no end to mining the depths of how things like songwriting are both, you need the, the inspiration that comes from God and the talent that comes from God. Sure. Yeah. But there is also something called song crafting where you have to learn a craft and get good at your craft. Well, so, so you, you did a number of albums with Sweet Comfort and that kind of came to an end and the allies was your next venture. Did, was that a natural progression or was that something that you said, we've got to put something together now, now that sweet comfort band is, is done. Um, yes, we did. We did six records. If you look at the sweet comfort band catalog, and then we, you can always tell in a record store in those days when someone put out a best of those of us in, in the music business go, Oh, the band must be breaking up. Yep. They're fulfilling uh, so, a contract. <laughs> <laughs> so the best of means there's no more records coming. Um, and uh, so um, 
we were we had been working with Dino and John Elefante and right Dino was the the guy who turned to me at some point and he had said uh, I know what you're going to do you're going to start another band and uh, and I've got a name for you and he had a dramatic pause and he he you know he speaks with his hands and he puts his hands up in the air and and, and he says allies oh no and, kidding uh, Yes, he just uh, he just announced the name to me, and uh, so I sort of at that point went around and tried to find a, f- a combination of musicians. There was a band called Idle Cure, and sure, uh, it was one of those guys that I talked to, and uh, some of my old friends like Mike Hodge and so forth, where I had had tried different combinations of. Uh, putting some musicians together, but it seemed as though I couldn't put the band together huh. because uh, Sam Scott literally showed up on my doorstep and said, let's start a band with Bob Carlisle. And Bob had been a guy who uh, you'll notice that we called him in to sing with Sweet Comfort Band. He was right. on yeah. some of those. Yeah. And, uh, but Bob was another of the alumna uh, alumni or however you say it of, yeah. of Psalm 150. We had played right. together in that band. And, uh, but my respect level for Bob was so high that I thought, no, there's no way we could get <laughs> Carla. So we went to a club called Rosie's in Rosemead, California. And we heard Bob playing with a bar band and he was brilliant as always, but still he yeah. was just playing in a bar. And so during a break, Sam and I just said, what do you think if we start a band? And, uh, and I thought he would say, you know, no, thanks fellas, you know, right. Uh, right. But it turned out that God had Bob, you know, at, at a place where he was desperate to get out of bars and to, uh, stop being in what he called bar world. Yeah. And, uh, and I remember one of his first questions was, he said, well, is this going to be a ministry where we all starve and we don't make any money <laughs> right. or, or is this going to be a, a band where we can actually, I can feed my kids. Yeah. And I said, yes. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and Bob never, yeah. And Bob never <laughs> forgot that, that we could actually be an evangelistic ministry on the one hand, but we had yeah. hopes to, to uh, actually feed our children while we did this. And that's what allies became. We, uh, then we, you know, went with Sam, we started our first record and Sam left after two years and Bob and I continued on. And again, we did about six records before, before the transition out of allies Yeah, was, uh, that Bob, I remember just said, let's not do the beating the dead horse tour. Ah, <laughs> there are some Christian artists whom I shall not name who they seem to after after maybe the act should have died. Yeah, they, they just continued to make records mm-hmm. as if they they didn't know what else to do. And uh, and so Bob and I got to a point where we moved to Nashville and uh, we'd been doing it about nine years and Bob wanted to do a solo record. And uh, I was experiencing deja vu from, mm, yeah. uh, you know, with Sweet Comfort Band, of course, Brian yeah. had a had a long, illustrious solo career. 
Right. And uh, so here we go again. The, the singer's leaving and going to do a solo record. That was a peaceful transition where we we just simply uh, we decided to shoot the horse rather than uh, you know try to ride the dead horse. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I think that this may or may not interest you, but I think the end of Sweet Comfort Band was the typical uh, ending of a band in that uh, Brian and I were the malcontents. We wanted to go on and do something else. Rick and Mm -hmm. Kevin wanted to continue the band as it was. And we had a typical unfortunate band breakup where two of us needed to have a creative change and two of them you know, being brothers, right. Uh, we, we broke into two camps and that was the end of that, you know? Well, the, the lesson I think we learn uh, just real briefly about Randy is that if you want to start a band with a good vocalist, uh, have Randy put it together because I mean, you've got the powerhouse of Brian Duncan, you've got the powerhouse of Bob Carlisle, and then you team up with Andy Denton, a powerhouse vocalist, uh, wow. to put together identical strangers. Yeah. Wow. You know your Christian music history better than I do. Uh, I'm kind of, I'm kind of addicted. That's why. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. That now that led to uh, the question after allies was over with, I view that as there was such a transitional time and things were changing and there, there was much more of a sense of, I think when I look back on sweet comfort band, uh, and Sunrise and Psalm 150, we just did what we did. We just sort of followed mm-hmm. our noses, and God was in it, you know? Right. And then I think when we started Allies, I I became more, uh, what's the word? Uh, you know, there, there were things that were more thought through, and they were more planned. Mm, yeah. And, you know, you're in danger of things being fabricated. But still, you know, uh, God has his hand in all of these things. Absolutely. Uh, and so I think to some degree I was suffering by the time that we, we put allies to bed and we were going to do something new. I was trying to figure out what is going on in, in the music world. Now, instead of just simply following my nose, uh, if I just continued to make music that sounded like it was from the 70s or the 80s, I was going to be in trouble. So there were stylistic changes and there was just things going on in what was being played in radio and where the art of music was heading. Uh, I had to actually break down and listen to, you know, what was going on in Christian radio and secular radio. And so we set off on Andy and I uh, wanted to try to sort of create, you know, what is the sound of identical strangers? I don't know. And we tried to sort of create a sound that was sort of, you know, uh, it couldn't help but be sort of retro because of my influence, maybe. Yeah. And then we were looking to fit in with what was going on in Christian radio, and we were trying to make it updated and, and current. Right. You know? So what you're shooting for is Nautro. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> good, good, good word. <laughs> yeah. So I think if you listen to Identical Strangers, you'll hear, you know, they're, they're sort of I think I felt at that time, like if we have influence from the sixties and the seventies, that's okay. Sure. But if, if anything sounds like it's from the eighties, they're going to hate us. So we sort of had this rule of, of 
now it's the nineties. We can't do anything that sounds like it's from the eighties. Yeah. Um, interesting. And Andy was a great partner and singer and, and, uh, Unfortunately, that was interrupted by having a hit song, and I just yeah. I needed to sort of get out of the uh, the artist side of Christian music at that point. Well, well, so that kind of dovetails then into one of the questions I was going to ask is because you've written songs for a ton of people. Of course, probably the the most well known is Butterfly Kisses. Um, but you've also, well, maybe not most well don't because Dolly recorded one of your songs. Uh, what is it? Why'd you come in here looking like that, right? That's probably even bigger than than Butterfly. Yes. Thank you for thank you for doing your homework and knowing. Uh, now I'm getting my, yeah, if, if we had a timeline in here, in the middle of the Allies timeline, what really shook Bob and I up is uh, when Sam left the band, Bob and I started becoming a songwriting partnership. Okay. And the reason that's significant is we we had a year, it was somewhere around 1986, in which uh, our record contract came to an end. Um, we didn't have a manager. We didn't have a booking agent. We didn't have a record contract. All the things that you're supposed to have. Right. And, and Sam left the band. And it just looked like it was it was all in tatters. And Bob called me up one day and said, "What do you think if we just we just start a band called Allies, and we you and I will just write all the songs?" And uh, and he made this pitch to me because he had witnessed uh, a duo of songwriters. Uh, Steinberg and Kelly and Billy Steinberg had hired Bob to sing and, you know, and play on these projects that these two writers did. And Bob had just watched these guys live in Los Angeles, be songwriters and make a living just writing songs. Not have to be on the road, not have to do all of that kind of stuff, just kind of a nine to five kind of a thing. Yes. And they literally sort of clocked in every day, just writing songs. Wow. And Bob wanted to he he said, you know, I think we can do that. Uh, and so that was his proposal that we become this songwriting team. And we try to consider ourselves, you know, uh, and, and we started a publishing company called Carlisle and Thomas Songs. Hmm. And so you'll notice that from then on, everything was written by Bob and myself. But that led to then, then Bob showed up one day in a 65 a uh, Chevrolet truck that he drove and he just drove up in his truck and said, what do you think if we write country music? And based upon my childhood experience of listening to classic country, I said, I think I can do that. Okay. And uh, although my influence in country music, uh, there was a lot of things that happened in the seventies and the eighties that I wasn't paying attention because I was involved in rock and roll and Christian music. Right. Yeah. And so I knew that a lot of my influences went back to the 50s and 60s country music. So so Bob and I started listening to what was going on in country music, and he said, I think we can do this. And the first song that we wrote was, Why'd You Come In Here Looking Like That? Then during those days, it was Benny Hester came over to the studio and 
for some reason, I played Benny the song. And then for some reason, Benny said, I think I could take it to Nashville and I can get a bunch of major artists to listen to this song. Wow. Now, we had no experience with the whole song pitching thing and all of that and and somebody other than us recording a song. So I handed him a cassette and I thought, you know, well, we'll see. Expect yeah. probably nothing will come of this. And then we got the phone call from Nashville saying, Dolly Parton has recorded your song. Wow. And that must have been surreal. It was the strangest thing. And, uh, you know, a good example is, you know, where we're Bob and I were out playing dates. And at one point we were sort of at a, you know, a, a small town holiday inn. And we were playing a gig with allies. So there began to be this interesting juxtaposition of <laughs> uh, where, where Bob and I were playing this little holiday inn. And we felt like our careers were, you know, our performing career in some ways was, you know, as Bob used to say, we have scratched and clawed our way to all the way to the middle. <laughs> yes. And so here we are feeling like our our career, as you're looking at it, compared to an Amy Grant or a Smitty, yeah. we felt like, you know, we, we are the mediocre ones. Uh, right. And we're sitting in this little restaurant on tour with our band. And then over the system, wherever we were, it might've been, you know, somewhere in Wyoming, but yeah. when we heard our song, why'd you come in here looking like that from Dolly Parton, you know, suddenly Bob and I looked at each other over our morning eggs and coffee. And, and, and we felt like, I think we've arrived. Yeah. You know, there, there was, it was really strange to be doing, you know, Christian music and have a number one hit in the country world. Crazy, yeah. And Dolly did that for us. Yeah. So so you have written a ton for folks, right? I mean, a lot of, a lot of the country market. Yes, that led to a, a time where when we lived in Nashville, uh, I was there for about 20 years and Bob was there about 20 years. When when you live in Nashville, there is so much going on that then I switched mentalities where I was writing for Polygram Music, which is now okay. uh, Universal. Oh, okay. Um, you'll find uh, those of us you know who used to be in the music business. Remember back when there was a music business? Yeah, exactly. What, <laughs> what was really common? It happened to the Beatles. It happens to everybody is you, you sign a contract with somebody and then later in your life, someone else buys that company. Yeah. And, uh, uh, and so I signed a contract with Polygram and I should have known that now later in life, that's universal. It'll be somebody yeah. else. And you wind up not knowing anybody at the company where you worked. Mm. And, uh, so I spent a few years there just writing music and we, Bob and I had a bunch of cuts we had, uh, I don't have my resume in front of me, but we had, you know, there were Colin Ray, there was Hank Williams Jr., there was Engelbert Humperdinck. Oh, wow. Uh, that's a that's a name. <laughs> <laughs> there was all kinds of folks that, uh, you know, you're getting someone else. Uh, there was Lila McCann was one of them. 
getting people to record your songs. So I really was trying to get into the Nashville mentality of you write a song and then somebody else records it. Yeah. And uh, which is interesting because what I didn't foresee, and I think what God teaches us sometimes is we go chasing after things and right. butter, butterfly kisses. We should get to that. Uh, was the the song that was really I didn't see it coming. You know where it it yeah. was it was Bob and it was he and I and it was our partnership and it, that was the sort of the crown jewel of twelve years of writing together. So I've I've yeah. I've talked in circles too much. You need to ask me a question well, and bring me back <laughs> on track. This is all this is all fascinating. Actually, I am pushing you in a, a certain direction because I know for a couple of years you toured with Shania Twain as a guitar player, which means you're no slouch. Um, so if you were to say, do you prefer the songwriting side or do you prefer the, the guitar playing side, the performing side? I guess there is no preference. There's a, my experience, you know, in, in 2020, <laughs> yeah. now that there's sort of, uh, there, songwriters cannot re- really make a living being a songwriter any longer. Hmm. And so I would answer that saying the the problem is where I sit now. Uh, songwriting just can very easily feel pointless because there's just really no way to make a living at it. I still spend a lot of my energy collecting guitars and playing guitars and rehearsing. I'm still very active as a guitarist. Yeah. But, uh, you know, the terrible truth that happens in life is uh, when you're in your twenties and you're in your thirties, it seems as though, you know, people, there's this interesting combination of, you you have a tendency to make music that is on the creative edge of something. Okay. And, you know, and then when you appear on stage, you are relevant and your struggle when you get to be in your sixties is, you know, when you play guitar, people are always sort of like in my case, you know, the reaction is the surprise, like, oh, grandpa has skills. <laughs> you know, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, you know there, there's sort of this, you know, you just no longer fit the profile of someone who's supposed to be on stage or supposed to be writing songs. Hmm. But to try to answer your question, you know, if I preferred, you know, writing songs or guitar, I, I would say that there was a point at which, you know, I, I would spend a lot of my energy writing songs in the Nashville years. Uh, and I might spend less energy playing guitar, but Mm -hmm. the two are so tied together that, uh, I would say I enjoy it all. Two sides of the same coin. Yes. Yeah. But I think because if you, you know, you look back at my history line and I, uh, I'm glad that I've had a history where the bands that I've been in nearly lasted a decade, mm-hmm. uh, where there's, you know, there's a great history of rock and roll bands. If there's something good enough to make the band, um, you know, hit and have a great song or have a great singer or have a, have a great record, you'll notice that the life expectancy is anywhere from two to four years. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, I had good relationships with great people and, and had a really long run, but, um, 
uh, I think that my thinking was back when I was in the middle of all of it, uh, and this is going to sound terrible, but I'm just going to be honest with you. Oh, well, thank you. My, <laughs> my thinking was a lot of these singers, they can write a song and they can sing it and they've got an advantage over all of us. Mm, and yeah. so I think that my thinking was I need to be uh, writing songs. I need to be playing guitar. I need to sing as well as I can. I need to... Uh, and you'll notice that I wound up being a recording engineer on mm -hmm. a lot of the projects. I wound up being a producer on a lot of the projects where I wore as many hats as possible so that my my kids would be able to wear shoes. <laughs> <laughs> I like that phrase. Yeah. Well, so this kind of morphs into, because, you know, ultimately for me, Christian music is about Christ. And mm -hmm. it kind of morphs into the the next phase of your life, which I've which I'm always interested in hearing, specifically about musicians who decide, you know, I think God's calling me into the ministry now, not the touring singing ministry, not that that's not ministry, but into the pastoral ministry. And you spent some time, I think, didn't I understand you went back to school even started studying, and you're now a, a music pastor. How did how did that transition? come about? How did God kind of say, okay, time to look over here for a while? That came as, I think, the the fallout of Butterfly Kisses. Now, this is interesting because the song was number, seven, number one for seven weeks uh, in the summer of 1997. I think I got all my numbers correct. And so it was a real phenomenon. It sold 3 million records. It sold a million singles. So the success of that thing just sort of, it, it was so huge that it was life-changing. So that was wonderful. And I think between 97 and the, the end of the last century that we were in, um, I sort of ran around confused for a few years. Huh. Um, so I don't expect anyone to feel sorry for me, but sometimes when, you know, when you win a Grammy and when everything goes right, it destroys a lot of things. <laughs> interesting. That's an interesting perspective. It destroyed identical strangers. I think it, you know, it caused me to, you know, not know. I think that, uh, after we wrote Butterfly Kisses, you'll notice that, that Bob and I wrote A Father's Love. Right. And it was our follow-up to Butterfly Kisses. And uh, and comparatively, compared to the gigantic success of Butterfly Kisses, A Father's Love became was put in a Michael, what was his name? Michael Keaton yeah. movie called Jack Frost. And as Bob once said, if you watch the movie Jack Frost back in those days, uh, you know, you would go see the movie and you would think, ah, that it probably wasn't Michael's best movie. Mm, yeah. And then after you left the theater, the guy who was sweeping up the popcorn when, <laughs> when they played A Father's Love, you know, he might have stopped sweeping up popcorn for a minute going, hey, that's kind of a nice song. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's the difference between A Father's Love and Butterfly Kisses. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And uh, I'm being cruel, but it's it's just fun to tell these stories. 
Um, and so you really have a little bit of a crisis of how do you top that? You can't, you just can't top that. Mm. And, uh, and I also had a little bit of a crisis with, I thought, well, you know, now that we have a hit song that's that big, then all kinds of other things will follow. And, uh, and it just seems like things didn't follow. It seemed like, you know, we, we had gone to the mountaintop and, uh, and now everything else felt like a letdown. So mm. that was my long road to get to this. When you experience, uh, some people have to hit bottom, I think, you know, before they, they really, really look to God. And mm. in some ways, you know, the experience of butterfly kisses caused me to try to figure out who I am and to truly look to God. And, you know, in my case, I didn't hit bottom. I hit, I accidentally hit the top. Right. But, <laughs> you know, all the, all the cliches about shattering the glass ceiling, you know. Yeah. Well, and it's not like you weren't following God up to this point either. I mean, that was, that was not the, you were still deeply rooted in, in being a believer and being a Christian, right? Yeah. I appreciate you saying that. Yeah. You're putting in the right perspective, but there is there will be a crisis that God will purposely put you through so that you have to ask some big questions. And, you know, of course my questions are, what am, what am I going to do now? What am I, yeah. what, what did God put me on this planet to do? And the, to boil it down, the very simple answer when I was to look at myself and say, okay, I'm a Christian who does music. What do you do with that? A Christian who does music. And there was this new thing called worship leaders. Mm. And so my wife and I uh, began to, we, we went so far as uh, one of our, the churches that we looked into was in San Antonio. And we were even considering, you know, maybe leaving the Nashville area. Mm-hmm. And we wound up because, yes, as you said, I was reading a lot of theology. I was going through a major conversion inside my conversion to something that's called Reformed theology. We can get to that later. And that led to wanting to get back into ministry in a new way. And as is always interestingly the case, uh, when I was looking all all over the world to try to find a place to do ministry, then something opened up in my backyard, and we did a church plant in Spring Hill, Tennessee. People from uh, you know the Nashville area will know Spring Hill as oh that's where all the young people are moving, mm. and uh, so we had a church there that was just just full of young marrieds, and that was a great. It was about four years that um, I was just happily doing that and then got the call to come down here to Fort Myers, which led to our last adventure. Well, and you've been in Fort Myers now for what, 13 or 14 years. So that, this has been another decade long chapter of your life. Yes, I used to uh, I used to think in terms of, you know, each band I was in, even though they they lasted about nine years, with all of the final tours and all the things that you have to do to finally put a band to rest, it, it winds up being pretty much a decade. 
And uh, so when I moved here and I started working with a pastor, I said, if you look at my history, um, <laughs> I, I only last about a decade, you know, <laughs> and he was yeah. fine with that, you know, yeah. uh, I've worked with four or five pastors since then, but <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, where uh, I guess sometimes pastors are more like rock stars where they come and go. But yeah. uh, so, uh, yeah, so I've, I've been really shocked to uh, look now at the timeline of my life. And my longest running job has been being a, a music pastor or worship leader, whatever term you want to put on it. Sure. Where the reason that I love it is it's a lot like what I've done my whole life. And that is, uh, I do music in order to do ministry. What is the passionate thing that drives you right now? I know ministry is part of that. Uh, is that your passion now? Are there is there a specific cause or a specific uh, thing that you're you're really driving to see? You, you mentioned Reformed theology. I don't want to put words in your mouth, mm-hmm. but what is it? What is it that drives you? Gets you up in the morning and says, "This is where God's got me planted for right now." What drives me is the same thing that that you know drives Christians. But as I think, as we look right now in 2020, I think a lot of the planet is asking this question: What is wrong with the world? Mm-hmm. And you know, the biblical answer goes back to the fall. We Christians look at what is going on between riots and COVID and and uh, all the anger and all the madness and the sadness going on, and the answer really is Jesus. Amen. Uh, there Amen. was one man who is both God and man, and we now have this resurgence of an idea of Marxism. And you remember that Marx talked about the new man. Mm-hmm. And this idea that socialism is the answer. So uh, I see things now, what I'm passionate about is talking about Christ because Jesus uh, is the new Adam and the one that we don't know that we're actually looking for. Mm-hmm. Uh, in in my studies, I learned about a man named Augustine, one of the mm-hmm. early church fathers in the uh, fourth century uh, Augustine lived in a time like we live, where the the Roman Empire was falling apart, and he wrote a book called The City of God. And the idea is there is a city of man where we build our Trump Towers and we build our uh, World Trade Centers and we, mm-hmm. we build our ziggurats, and it's like you know trying to build your stairway to heaven. We're trying to build the Tower of Babel. We're building the Tower of Babel again and again and again. Yes. Yep. And meanwhile, but Augustine came up with this idea of the city of God. That meanwhile, as uh, as we see in, in history, there somebody will have an empire. And it runs its period of time, you know, maybe 200 years. And then it falls apart. And then another empire comes up. Yeah. And then that crumbles, and then there's another empire. And I think we're concerned in the United States thinking we may be looking at the decline of our country. And yeah. it seems as though so many things are rotting away. And what is the answer to this? And we're looking for politics to be the answer. 
we're we're looking to the wrong places for the answer because getting back to this idea of there is a city of god and that is the church of christ running through all ages and god continues to build something that's not going away yeah meanwhile we live in what what may be you know a falling empire and we see all this anger and stuff and i think that causes us to realize that truly dr- justice that everyone's talking about and vengeance that we see played out on the news channels those things are god's business yes that god is the only one who can set everything right uh remember when jesus said behold i make all things new yes so the idea is the new man we need to look to the second adam and and the answer lies in the second Adam makes us the new man. And that leads me us to, you know, second Corinthians five that says, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. Yeah. So isn't it unfortunate that the church no longer is preaching these truths in such a way that, uh, I think the world is not looking at the church as having the answers. They're looking us yeah at us as being the ones that, uh, I don't know how they look at us anymore, Mm, but I know that from God's perspective, we continue to have the gospel. We continue to have the answer. And so I suppose, you know, we churches ought to say to ourselves, we better be preaching Christ because that is the answer. He is the answer. And the very thing that the world is is burning down their own towns trying to figure out we have in Christ. And the part that, that for me is just astounding is we have the answer that is capable of saving everybody, but we're so afraid to share it. Mm -hmm. And, you know, a lot of, a lot of music today even is focusing on our relationship and so forth, but we need to talk about how do we take this, so that other people can find this living water that's going to save them, that's going to give them energy. Yes, and that causes, I, I think it's, you know, it is wonderful, all the history of Christian music, and I think it's also wonderful that you live in a world when you archive stuff and you talk to someone, you know, sometimes decades after they did something in Christian music, you'll find that people have you know, parts of their lives that are, that are part of a career and these things come and go. And those of us that get to a point where we're in our sixties actually have a tiny, tiny, tiny bit of perspective in how God is walking us through this stuff. And, and the great irony is never lost on me that back when I had zero perspective, uh, that's when I was writing songs that people were listening to. And <laughs> now that I have a little bit of perspective and have a little bit of wisdom, I don't have an audience. <laughs> well, and you know, you had mentioned something earlier in our conversation about the songwriting process, about how sometimes the real gems and stuff come out of the hard places in our life. And that's what I've been praying for lately is that this hard time in our world right now, whether it's the pandemic, whether it's, uh, political, social issues, hopefully these these hard times are going to bring us back to, oh, the answer is Jesus. And mm-hmm. I'm hoping that we who have that answer 
are willing to share that answer a little bit more readily. Yes, and amen. Well, Randy, one of the things that we do, and I know you and I have communicated about this in the past, is we send out a weekly prayer letter asking for our uh, friends of music to pray for those of you who are making music still. So how can we be praying for you in these upcoming weeks? Boy, that's uh, it's really hard to come up with an answer to that. I think that because I work at Westminster Presbyterian Church, we have our little outpost of the kingdom of God. And I'm sure that we would, we would ask for prayer that we faithfully preach God's word and reach our Jerusalem and Samaria and the outermost parts of the, of the earth. We would welcome prayer that we, I, I think in the instance of our church here in Fort Myers, we do a good job of sending out missionaries. We do a great job of, you know, writing a check for a missionary, but we, we often don't do the old fashioned thing we did back in the Jesus movement in the seventies. And that is just go talk to your neighbor about Jesus. Talk to your friends, people you work with in the office. So I think that what we need is a, a new sense of personal evangelism. That We do well at professional evangelism, but, but that one-on-one talk to your neighbor, the mailman, you know, or the guy that lives across the street is really where we need prayer. I hope you enjoyed this trip down memory lane. It's always fun for me to hear these behind-the-scenes stories of how some of my favorite music came to be. I'm always grateful that you take the time each week to listen to this podcast, and your notes of encouragement are so meaningful to me. I love hearing from each of you. You can drop me a quick email on my website, christianmusicarchive.com podcast. Oh, and you can also sign up for our weekly newsletter there as well. Another way to get a hold of me is on one of our social media sites. You'll find us at CCM Exchange on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and Patreon. It would be great if you could help spread the word about this podcast too. Would you tell your friends about these conversations? Or maybe give us a five-star rating on your favorite podcast app. A review also helps let other people know that these conversations are interesting. Well, that does it for this week. To find out more about Randy Thomas or other artists like him, go on over to my website, christianmusicarchive.com. And until we get the chance to chat next week, remember that God loves you. In fact, he's crazy about you. <laughs>